Hello and welcome to Arts Anatomy. I'm your host, Darcy Love, and today we have a very special guest, the program director for the writing in film, sorry, the writing for film and TV program at Toronto Film School, and an incredible writer in his own right, Adam Till. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be Uh, here with you. So to give a, a brief rundown of your background, you have kind of your claim to fame is billable hours as a TV show. Um, but can you talk to us about how you got into writing in the first place? Well, I mean, I think I always wrote. I think I always enjoyed writing. Um, whenever I got an assignment at school that was creative writing based, I was excited. Whenever I had to go to the library, I was upset. Um, we actually had to go to libraries back then, everybody. I guess I'm old, but there was a place where the books were and you had to walk there or take a subway or something. And it was it was a whole thing. But yeah, creative writing, just the blank page and anything from my brain was lots of fun for me. So I always wrote creative stories, but parents and teachers don't, you know, didn't then. And I still don't think tell you that um, and, you know, screenwriting is a career. So um, I rebelled against my family's wishes for me to pursue medicine and I became a lawyer because I'm bad news. Um, so, you know, that that was my big rebellion at that point. But, you know, I, I, once I figured out what being a lawyer was, it was not the creative environment I was hoping for. And I kept writing. And I, I was actually writing while I was in law school. And I wrote, tried to write a novel that sort of turned into a screenplay, a lot of dialogue. And I realized this is more of a screenplay. Um, and, you know, I met uh, Michael Levine when I was at Goodman's. I, I articled and I was hired back as an associate at Goodman's LLP downtown and uh, Michael Levine was running the entertainment department and I, you know, in my misery there, I showed him some of my work and he liked it and uh, he owned, he he owns still uh, Westwood Creative Artists, which is the largest literary agency in the country and they had a film and television division they were just starting and he, he brought me in as one of their first clients and no, the rest is history, as they say. He he helped introduce me around and eventually packaged the show uh, for Showcase Global. That's awesome. So was it that clicked when you were working as a lawyer that you went, no, this isn't what I want to do. I want to become a writer as a career. Well, I mean, it was it was always kind of there. I was never... I mean, I actually enjoyed law school and the theory surrounding law, but I was—I knew the jobs weren't mostly that. Um, I didn't—I didn't want to be a litigator. Um, I enjoyed criminal law. I actually won the criminal and evidence law awards at, at law school, but I was afraid of—I don't know. When you go to the prisons, they make you sign this waiver that says, "If there's a riot or something happens, we're just basically leaving you in there. We will not negotiate for your release." <laughs> and I just didn't like that form. So I never, all my friends were doing the Innocence Project, which I desperately wanted to do and I helped with, but I wouldn't, I could, didn't want to go into the prisons because I guess I'm a coward. And, um, But I always just loved the stories in law. I loved the cases, the, how it, the real things people did. That was always just really interesting to me. Um, so I guess, you know, the, I talk about this at some of the open houses. I was trying to find out what the job was. I was moving towards corporate law because there was a lot less danger there. <laughs> um, and uh, I was finding out it was just a lot of paperwork. Back then, there was 
is due diligence. So if two companies, there's an $8 billion merger, it sounds very exciting, but really someone has to sit and read every lease and supplier agreement both of those companies has ever signed to make sure that some, nothing that messes up the deal, a change of control clause or something like that. So I would sit in rooms of paper reading with a dictaphone or a, a pen, just jotting things down. And I think, you know, uh, there was probably a day I've talked about on a Sunday where, um, you know, I, I was in, I'd probably worked every day that month, including weekends, except for one or two, maybe 9 a.m. until midnight on average. And, uh, and I was watching people skating on Nathan Phillips Square. And I just thought to myself, I was so jealous of them, even though I don't actually skate. Um, and then I thought if I took a running start out and broke through the window, I might be able to like land on some of them and take them with me. And then I thought that's a very low moment in your life. That's a very bad thought. And, uh, maybe it's time to really switch, switch gears and try and focus on something else. So I was relatively young. I was still, you know, my late twenties. And I just thought, let's go full force for this. Like, you know, I'm sort of an, when I, when I go for something, I do it all out. And, uh, you know, I went, uh, you know, all guns blazing, guns blazing, full force into this. And I tried everything and, um, you know, I was lucky enough to have some success. And so when you were first starting, how did you figure out what you needed to do to break into that industry? Because I think it can be a bit daunting for people who have a passion for writing, but don't know how to get into it. Mm hmm. And I mean, yeah, that's that's part of why I was drawn to Toronto Film School is actually is it's an attempt to set people up. So I had to learn, you know, common structures for the different formats, like how to how to build characters, the basics of three act structure. And I was just I just for my birthday, I think when I was maybe 27 or 20 around then I, I bought um, every screenwriting book that I could find in. You know, I was still a lawyer at that point. So I just bought every screenwriting book in in chapters. And I read them and I learned, I learned a lot, but I, I didn't learn a lot of the things that I needed to know that was, that were more experiential. And I was lucky enough to have mentors in my early days. I mean, basic strategy for getting out there for me was full frontal attack, like keep writing, keep getting better, keep doing better work. And then, you know, keep getting out, meeting people and showing them my stuff. So, you know, if back then, I mean, I'm not as active now, but back then in TIFF, I would be going to films and I'd be, I'd be going to a party every day, at least through some connection I had, I could get into some party if I pushed hard enough. And I did. Um, any meeting someone would offer me, I took it. Uh, a lot of those were people making, you know, bad sci-fi in their basement or, you know, something untoward in their backyard. But a lot of those worked out well. A friend of mine from law school said, you should meet my uncle, he's a director. And I just thought it's another one of these, but let's see. And he was, it was Sheldon Larry. He was, you know, directing David E. Kelly stuff at the time. He was directing Ally McBeal in Boston Public. And he, you know, read my stuff and we ended up working together. And he introduced me to Leslie Belsberg, a good friend of his, who um, uh, was John Landis's co-producer through, you know, all of his major films, Animal House, Spies Like Us. And she became a friend and she also liked, you know, my writing. We worked on things together, the three of us. She actually was the initial executive uh, story editor on Billable Hours in development. Um, so I just, you know, I took every opportunity that was out there and I just sustained it over time. I, I wrote and networked and, you know, put myself out for as, as much as I could for years. That's fantastic. Uh, I do want to take a quick moment to let anyone know who, uh, who's watching us live. If you've got any questions for Adam, drop them in to the chat and we'll try to get in as many as we can.
But I want to talk about in those early days, did you have any major fails that you thought, this is the end of my writing career, I had a good run, but this is the moment that's that's over for me? It's over. Um, you know what? I, I, I sort of put it in my mind. I was watching a lot of people with B plans and anyone who had a B plan, that just became their plan. Like within the, within the year, they told me, well, you know what? I've also got a job at a PR agency if it doesn't work out with writing. All those people did the B plan right away. So I just told myself, no B plan. Um, you know, I was I had some money saved up from being a lawyer. Um, I was working as a copywriter for some web design companies. I said, but I didn't let that become my thing. I said, no, I'm going to do that on contract and just use that to make money. Um, some friends were teaching English overseas. I was thinking if worse comes to worse and I ran out of money, I would take a year, teach English and Korea was the destination back then, South Korea, and then come back. Um, but I just refused, you know, to have a B plan. And my writing partner that I was going to meet and that we did Billable together, Fab Filippo, he told me the same thing when we started. He said, you know, that a lot of the people that are still doing it, he'd been a child actor. So he'd been around for you know, 15, 20 years at that point. A lot of the people who are still doing it are just the ones who pushed the hardest and persevered. You know, most of them are, are very talented. Some of them aren't the big talents that, you know, you thought for sure were going to have the careers. But the ones who just stuck around, kept pushing, kept getting better, kept doing it are the ones who succeeded. And I continue to see that now. It's it's pressure over time and it's perseverance. That's awesome. And so was there a moment where you felt that you made it as a writer? I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting for, I, I guess, you know, at some point gradually in my career, I think someone... I've, uh, a friend of the family who she used to babysit for me sent me an email saying after you know i think perfect sisters oh you know i saw it it's great I, you know i've been following your career and i just thought i have a career she's she's established that i have a career at this point but that's the, the tricky thing about you know especially screenwriting and, and you know uh, there are a lot of people who gig i wasn't a gig writer so i didn't go from writing room to writing room i went from development to development i still do uh, original project project original project so you know after billable i was having a development every year i wrote some tv movies i had the feature in 2014 i had I had the big development at fox in 2017 with andrew barnsley um but every one of those just felt like well someone who knew me from that and someone who liked me from this and i never really felt like boom okay now you're a going concern uh and i remember you know karen walter uh, Karen Walton, who co-executive producer for Orphan Black, uh, is and was a friend and a mentor when I was coming up. And I remember talking to her. And I think I think it was Sammy Chalice who was ended up writing on Mad Men, and I think she won a, an Emmy for for one of her Mad Men episode. And I remember they were well established at the time when I was talking to them. And I remember saying, you know, so when did you feel like you made it? And they basically said the same thing I'm saying now. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that. <laughs> it just feels like one to the next, but. That's part of this, I guess. It's sort of, you, you don't get that feeling where it's like, all right, now you can just relax. But that was, was also something, you know, invigorating about it. And um, that's not what keeps me going. I just, I have a next project I want to do. Is there a reason you never uh, got into gig writing and you kind of kept more towards that development than development than development? Um, for me, I... I you know, the big decision after Billable Hours was we have we had LA agents. Um, 
we still, you know, I we still do sort of have Ian moved to Gersh and he's kind of hip pocketing us, but um, we were officially with Paradigm back then. And they first thing after Billables, they wanted us to pitch a new series, um, you know, a similar comedy law show. And we did pitched all around LA. We actually had Sean Hayes' company interested right before the writer's strike, when, which unfortunately ended that deal. Um, but the big decision was, you know, where are we going to go live in LA? Gig writing up here. Um, you know, it's good, but it's not as lucrative. And if, if we were going to do it down South, it would have been worth our whiles. But at the same time, we both had just had kids. So we had, you know, I had two young daughters and he had a, his young son. He had lived in LA for seven years and he had sort of had it with it for the time being. And, you know, there was enough going on up here that we just thought, um, you know, I, we didn't want to move around and, and neither one of us individually wanted to move around Canada, uh, you know, following the gigs. Um, we could go, re, re, you know, replant ourselves in Hollywood, but uh, neither one of us wanted to do that. So we just thought, let's keep going with the with the developments and the TV movies and the movies here, um, which we're doing enough, you know, at the time. And, you know, it was more kind of closer to what we wanted to do. We were We had a lot of control over what we were writing. That's awesome. I think a lot of writers dream of kind of having that control and to know that there is a career out there for it is refreshing. Uh, I did want to talk to you a little bit about what is it like to be creating your own TV series? Um, what is it like? Well, I mean, I think a lot of our students and yourself included, you know, that's part of what we do. We sit around and we dream up, you know, movies and shows. We dream up like imaginary scenarios based on things we know or things we've experienced, things we see. And, you know, with themes that we think resonate with people or will resonate with people if they don't, you know, relate to the specific experience. So, you know, any any show idea that we've gotten excited about has, has generally been exciting to us. It's just sort of you, you throw around ideas and then all of a sudden you hit on something that, yeah, that that's what we want to say right now. And that we're going to resonate with that. And that's sort of current. And, you know, that's on the zeitgeist. Um we did a show, we developed a show in, I'd say, 2013 area where, you know, our generation, I guess, is sort of the post. We, we came up in the 90s, so we're the post, you know, 80s cocaine, Wall Street, make lots of money, me generation. And we're sort of the let's enjoy life, bowling, slacker, you know, sometimes stoner generation. Uh, so we had a show about it, you know, a group of young people who are fail failing to launch and end up for various reasons moving directly into a senior's home with parents and uh, grandparents and skipping adult life entirely, sort of. There's reasons for it, you know, and there's ways that it makes sense in the, in the scope of the show. And we thought that was so original and the network loved it. And then we found out, you know, five other similar concept shows were being developed at the same time. One had actually made a pilot um, with young people moving into a senior's residence. So, um, it's sort of just nice, you know, when you're thinking honestly about what you, the world and what you feel and then trying to come up with shows organically and, and then seeing what everybody else in the world is doing too. My, uh, you know, our, our LA agent used to send us all the pilots that got bought every year. And it, you know, you just, it, it's, I just felt like it was seeing what people were thinking honestly around, you know, the country and around North America about what was happening in the world and that, that was in their art, that was in their show. So, you know, to me, it was always a cathartic and, and, a great process that I, I still enjoy I'm, as you know working on stuff now as we speak um, but you know creating a series is, is one of my great loves 
And so when you created Let's Use Billable Hours as an example, did you have all of the episodes written out when you went in for development or did it go into more of a writer's room where you had to give up some of this creative control of an idea that you created? Mm-hmm. Um, the first season, there was no writer's room. It was just fapping myself throughout all the episodes. Um, you know, when I came up, I had, had like an hour long version of the show that was more of an Ally McBeal hour comedy, you know, in its style. And I'd pitched that to showcase and they really liked it. Um, but they did said, we don't really do hours and we really want this to be more of a comedy. Uh, and you know, you're missing some key attachments and I knew they liked fab. I was developing his own series there and he actually, and we did a short film together. We had met before that really went well that he directed and that Karen Walton actually co-wrote with us. Um, so he just called me one day and said, uh, why don't we go in together with your show? Like, we'll, we'll make it into a half hour. We'll be co-creators and I'll star in it. And I bet you they'll go for it. And I said, great. And, you know, he was down with all the ideas that I had had already. He wanted to work on them with me, but you know, we did that first season together. When we came to showcase, I think we had just the episodes. I think their development, they said they wanted a full Bible with all eight episodes for the season. Uh, so we actually had to do, and they wanted more than a synopsis. They wanted a, a couple of pages. They wanted almost an outline on each episode. So that was our development with showcase was just doing uh, outlines, essentially two pages for um, for all eight episodes in the season. And then uh, some of those went through, a couple of them got, revised one of them got killed entirely but we we wrote something new and you know that was the first season then second season after it was sort of a bigger deal they suddenly wanted to hire all these people to help us and work on it and it stopped being our little show but it's hard to complain we got a lot of creative control especially in that first season and so working in that second season were you still the showrunner or did you step down as to just uh, another writer on so that. at that point um they hired frank van Kieke. so the first season we were supposed to have tim o'donnell as our showrunner he was um from growing pains and he he'd actually been the showrunner for dave's world harry anderson's show and he was terrific and i'm still friendly with him um i think his sensibility was a bit dated for the network and the producers so they they actually relieved him of his duties early on, and it was just left to myself and Fab on the creative end, and then Dave and Ivan from Temple Street sort of took over the the nuts and bolts producerial stuff, and we you know technically the, according to the Writers Guild, Fab and I were the showrunners, but we never actually replaced Tim, so it was sort of by default, uh, but it worked out well. Uh, then we did replace Tim in the second season with Frank Van Keeken, and then he did the last two seasons. So what was it like to have a showrunner in those last few seasons helping to arc this idea that you had created? Was it easy to have someone else in there or did you end up having some challenges along the way? No, it was very hard. It was very difficult. Uh, did not work out that well. It was <laughs> it was a contentious thing. You know, despite the fact we hadn't been intended to be the showrunners in season one, we wanted to continue in season two. Now Showcase is saying, well, this is our new star show. Like we were on after Trailer Park Boys. We were part of their big lineup. We have to take care of it. Uh, the Temple Street guys, you know, brought in Frank. Everybody had ideas about why the first season went well. And none of those ideas were because Adam and Fab did what they did. It was all, no, this character was, you know, one of the big notes we got was the Brandon Furlaz character, the Clark character, who is sort of the, the mean of the, the mean guy of the two who you know makes fun of Fab's character and is sort of the 
the rich snob. Yeah, he people like him because he's mean and let's make him meaner. And I just thought, no, that's he's he's clearly his, you know, Fab's friend. It's got there's a friendship ring to it. So there was a lot of conflict and a lot of fights. And, you know, Frank was a bit caught in the middle. He he definitely had to obey network and producer orders, but he had moments where we all connected and he wanted to do. But, you know, eventually you do what the money says. So um, you know, I know he was conflicted. We were we were having a rough time. So Season two, we weren't happy with. Uh, Showcase picked us up for season three quickly after season two because Global was buying Showcase and they didn't want to take a chance that Global wouldn't want to pick up. So we got our season three even before I think season two finished airing uh, or started airing. Um, and, you know, it sort of rode out from there. By the end, we knew that the new network wasn't uh, wasn't going to pick us up. Uh, I think Showcase had known that as well. Um, so, you know, it's it becomes a business situation and people are doing things to try and protect their money when business and art meet it's obvious it's not obviously it's often a not a good combination business thinks they understand what of the art made people watch and they never do in my experience uh which is why the hbo model works so well find creators you like give them control leave them alone <laughs> yeah no for sure. however it's still oh. uncommon and so then what was it like to move from Billable Hours to the TV movie? I believe your first was Too Late to Say Goodbye was the first TV movie you did after Billable Hours. What was it like to transition? Well, I mean, you know, Fab and I had, once we started working together, we had had a whole array of projects. Um, uh, you know, we had Billable Hours, but we had written some movies together. Um, we had other show ideas. You know, so Billable went and we sort of became the comedy guys. Um, but yeah, we had written a thriller together that was sort of Fab had an initial concept and I had another idea to add on to it. And then we just had a great, we had a great lunch at Calendar on uh, on college where we both ordered Scroll 5 and we just broke out the story for the cottage. And it was like an 84 page thriller with four characters that we thought we could shoot ourselves. And everybody loved it. Um, and our agents at, at Paradigm had it and they loved it. And they weren't thinking you're just comedy. They thought you guys can do this too. So while we're pitching these new comedies down south, they're also talking to different uh, producers. They had the Saw producers apparently liked it. And they, say, they said, well, we just got a nine picture deal. Maybe well, this will be one of our movies. Uh, and of course they made nine Saws, I guess, because I haven't seen, <laughs> I haven't seen anything else coming from them. Yeah. Um, but uh they were very excited about i had written a crime and punishment adaptation as well before i met fab so they had a couple of strong portfolio pieces for us for for true crime and crime thriller um it's just you know another client of theirs um had uh, got a slate i guess at their production company and they showed them our stuff they liked it uh this was stan brooks company once upon a time uh, we were one of the small movies. Our budget initially was supposed to be, I think, in the one to one and a half million dollar range. And Stan Brook just, well, like, as the president was just reading through the different scripts and he read ours and he loved ours. And he said, this is going to be bigger. And he got Rob Lowe attached for the lead. He said he was going to. And we just said, yeah, whatever, you're not. But he did. And uh, the budget went up. It ended up being about $3 million film in the end. And uh, it was a great experience. It was uh it was great working with uh, with Stan and Jim Head and everybody at Once Upon a Time. Uh, they unfortunately split up after that, Stan and, uh, Stan and Jim. And the way it was described to us is Stan got custody of us. But that's not a problem because Stan ended up uh, making Perfect Sisters, which was 
uh, the feature we made in 2014, which started as a, it was a property he'd optioned as a TV movie. And we'd actually started working on it with him as a TV movie. And then he just, after the once upon a time split, he, he said, let's do this as a feature. Um, so, you know, it was, um, we never just said we're, whoop, I'm breaking up. I'm magic. Um, we never just said, uh, uh, we're, we're comedy people. We'd always done a lot of sort of heavy, heavy drama and, and thriller type stuff, especially in the feature world. Were you ever worried that people were going to just see you as comedy people, no matter what else you did? Um, in Canada, especially, Oh, I froze with, uh, I froze with my glass in my face. That was pretty cool too. Um, in Canada, especially we were, we were, we were known as comedy people. So we, we interviewed for some TV movies that were much lower budget and profile than the ones we ended up getting in LA and Canada. And people basically just said, Oh, we just wanted to meet you because you're the billable hours guys. And you know, it's such a cool story because you used to be a lawyer, but yeah, no, you're comedy guys. You're not going to do this. And we just thought, but read our script. It's really good. And read, you know, Adam's other script. And, and you know, L.A., the, the one thing that they say about L.A., that it's land of opportunity, that Hollywood is, it's, you know, it's it's there for the taking. It really is. If someone likes, you know, your reel, your, your script, you know, your performance in a play, they will grab you. Uh, so, you know, after Billable, we, we had so much excitement in Hollywood and, and we had limited excitement here from certain connections, but not really overall excitement. So it's a bit strange. Um, but, you know, then you go, you do some Hollywood stuff and then you do get the excitement up here. And what was it like to work in L.A. after working in Canada? And then obviously you're back in Toronto now. Do you find that there is a culture shift between the two cities? Oh, huge. I mean, um, we never we, like we never lived down there, even when we were working on the movies down there, that it was always from Canada. And that's part of the advantage of being a screenwriter, a Canadian screenwriter um, working with Hollywood is they get tax credits up here, but they need their six out of 10 points and they need one of writer director to be Canadian. So I or we would always be the, the writer. Um, but Hollywood, yeah, it's totally different. I always tell students pitch meetings in Hollywood are always great with with the odd exception they always tell you this is the best thing ever we love you we're going to make this and you have really no idea i found i had no idea who really liked projects um i think we had 12 pitch meetings for the the billable hours ish like comedy law series we were developing right after billable hours it was you know just a little bit of a different premise i thought we we got 11 of the 12 i thought would want to buy the show and turned out one did but our agents were thrilled about that um but I guess no one wants to say no to the Beatles. No one wants to badmouth anybody and say, I really don't like this because then when you're big, they don't, they want to be able to come back to you. Um, yeah. HBO didn't mind telling us they didn't like it. <laughs> you only need one at the end of the day, I think. Uh, so I also want to, there you go. Well, the writer strike was about to happen anyways. Yeah, that's yeah. That's a good point. So why was it that you chose to work out of Toronto instead of trying to move down to LA and, and work in, in Hollywood? Um, you know, like I said, Fab, Fab had already spent time in LA and not, you know, I think he'd spent five, maybe seven years even living there. And he hadn't, so it's, it's a, the cliches are somewhat true. It's a superficial, it's a, you know, the, the environment there, 
you, you know, Toronto people who live here, I think we just sort of take it for granted, but there's something really nice about the general way Torontonians and, and Canadians are. I mean, LA's a, it's a tougher environment. Um, you know, you, it's tough to know who your friends are. It's tough to have real relationships. Um, and, you know, I hadn't spent as much time. I'd, I'd go down for just a week here and there. I'd go down a few times a year. Uh, but I've always had family there, so I'd always spent time in L.A. And I never thought to myself, this is somewhere I want to live. Uh, so that combined with the fact that um, we both had young kids when the when the real call came, like when the push from the agents came, it's like, OK, it's time to move down. Um you know, it was fairly easy for us to have a conversation and say, you know what, there's a lot, there's, this is a great industry here. We have a lot of context and a lot going here. Let's stay here. Uh, but they really dangled it like they they thought they could get us onto the office um, because of my legal background. And they're like, we're going to get you guys onto the office. Maybe, yeah, but difficult to we decided not. The Canadian market compared to L.A. or compared to New York? Um. I mean, you know, again, I'm not sure it's a full break-in. It's sort of sure over time, and and you're you're there, and then you're you're on various projects. And uh, I mean, my you know, Fab's break-in was early. Just an audition for Ready or Not, I think, was you know his big break as an, as a young actor, and he got a big part on that show. As, as I think he was Busy's older brother. Um, you know, my break-in was essentially. Um, you know, billable hours, I guess, was the big break. But, you know, the Michael Levine taking me into the agency. Uh, and again, it was based on, you know, scripts on talent. He, you know, he didn't really base it on anything else. I didn't have much else. Um, you know, it's the good thing about the, the arts industry is there are, you know, there's a lot of people who are business people and who have no idea what's good and don't really care and are just trying to make money. But there's still a lot of people in Canada and certainly in Hollywood who are they're looking for the next big thing they want to find that next you know writer that excites them that next actor who who captivates them and um those people are out there and you know you you may not meet them right away it may take a year or two to get to a you know a showcase where they're there but they're they're there um and you know Toronto especially you can meet everyone fairly quickly it's a it's a somewhat smaller you know um industry than than hollywood there's a lot less people doing it um and everybody's pretty open everybody's pretty good with their time that's awesome so do you find it's easier for young people trying to break into the industry to you know set up meetings with people they may not actually get to set up meetings with in la uh you know in regards to seniority in the in the industry I think, yeah, I think Toronto is an easier place to break in. Uh, I tell students, try and break in here, get, get a credit or two, and then go to L.A. And if you want to live in L.A., that's great. But if you don't, you know, an L.A. credit or two will also get you more work back here. Um, it was a joke with, you know, a lot of the, the writers I came up with. you got to move to L.A. so you can get Canadian gigs. Because at, at a certain point in like late two, like early, no, late 2000s, uh, everybody was moving to LA and then they'd hire you onto Canadian shows and they'd just come back and stay with their parents because their apartment was now in LA. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the plan for our students certainly should be, this is a good place to try and break in Toronto. It's smaller, it's open, people take your calls. And then once you have a credit, go, go South, whether it's for gigs or for, you know, uh, staff jobs or whatever, but um, it's nice to get something established up here first. 
mention of students is a good segue into what I'd like to talk about next, and that's how did you get into teaching? Um, you know, I as I was coming up, I noticed that most of the people I was working with, you know, at a higher level uh, did some teaching. Um, so I, I'm not sure I mentioned Adam Agoyan yet. Um, he was one, oh, another one of my early mentors. So Adam, after he won the Grand Prix at Cannes for, um, for the suite hereafter, um, he had been asked prior to that to, to potentially adapt his film, The Adjuster, into a, a TV series for HBO, but he wasn't interested in it at that time. And, you know, suddenly, for some reason, after, after the, the suite hereafter and after a few other projects, he started thinking television. And I think television was getting a better reputation. Television is certainly before the, the turn of the century was second class. Like it was, you know, you did film if you were good and then TV was like a second rate thing. And that was changing, you know, with the Sopranos and Six Feet Under, all the HBO shows and all the cable shows that started coming out around then. So he was open to it. So um, I think he was looking at various young writers to work with. And Michael Levine happened to pitch me and he read he read actually the, the the original script for billable hours which was called big law which was an hour and he liked it and uh you know we worked together he brought me to his office we'd work on the adjuster we actually optioned it to showtime um it didn't end up getting made the executive in charge unfortunately passed away um but you know it was a great experience working with adam um and you know i knew he was teaching uh at U of T at the time, I think. And then he moved, I'm not sure where he is now. He's moved around a bit, but he was always teaching. Sheldon Larry, my LA director friend from the David E. Kelly shows had done teaching at USC. So I thought, well, I guess that's part of how you end up making your income. And, you know, certainly after some credits, uh, um, you know, there was some interest in me teaching. So I, I taught a couple of courses at Ryerson and then um, uh, President Davey, uh, approached me. He had worked actually with my father at Sheridan years back when they were both sort of senior people there. And he said, you know, I've, I've, I've been following this another one. He said, I've been following your career. And I like, that means I have a career. That's great. Um, and he talked about what, what the school was up to and it sounded really good. And they talked about the creation of a writing program. Uh, and if I'd be interested in, in doing it and getting involved and maybe overseeing the development. So, you know, I did. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know if I was going to teach after that. I thought I might just develop the program and leave. But then I thought, well, let's let's make sure it gets off to a good start. And I, I stayed for a while. And, um, you know, truth be told, uh, I've, I've loved it. And I think the students kind of know that um, the creative environment at the school is amazing. And I mean, that's this that's the most fun part of the entire process is just having ideas and developing them and building them into what you want them to be. Frankly, once the money gets involved, it's still nice and now you're getting paid, but then you're dealing with, you know, business people and, you know, you're getting notes from legal. You can't use this, this corporation name, please change it to this. Um, it becomes more, you know, businessy, um, you know, so what happens at the school is just the fun part of everything. And, that, you know, I, I look forward to my Monday mornings, as I've said many times, um, I've enjoyed every second at the school and I've been able to continue working. The school has been very good about you know, me continuing to work on projects and anytime I have to take off or projects. That's fantastic. So what is your biggest piece of advice to young writers who are just stepping out, uh, you know, may have just graduated and are taking their first steps into the world of film and TV? 
first steps? I mean, so after coming to our school, I guess, because I think that's, I mean, tr truth be told, if if there was a program like ours when I was coming up, I would have done it. I just, I didn't want to do theory film school because I was like, how is that going to help me actually learn? Same way theory law school didn't help me learn what an actual lawyer did. Um, how is that going to help me? Um, but yeah, you certainly want to learn, you know, the norms, the structural norms, the the language, the basics of uh of the structure for each major format i mean there's you know the, what we teach at the school isn't just fun it's actually the core of the of what you need to know um but then the big thing after that is pressure over time you know keep working keep writing keep showing your stuff to as many people as will look at it keep getting better um and you know keep meeting as many people as you can keep getting yourself out there to every event possible I mean, I would I would be exhausted, you know, in my in my late twenties, but I would go to everything. Uh, I wouldn't want to. I'd be ex I'd, I'd come home. I'd have like worked and written in the morning, and it would be late. And someone says we can go to this party, and they, uh, but I'd force myself because you never know who's going to be there. And sometimes there was no one, but you know, a lot of times there was someone. And and the overall thing was you become part of the community. Uh, all the events that we set up for the students at TIFF Bell Lightbox and the ACCT and, and at, you know, the Canadian Film Centre and at TIFF itself during the, the festival. If you're at all those, you become part of it. It's not that big a community. And, you know, being part of it is actually quite important. So I would say pressure over time. Just keep doing it and, you know, keep trying everything on every front. So do you think it's a good time to be getting into, especially the TV industry, with all the streaming services? I've heard it be referred to as a second golden age of television. Do you agree with that? The streaming services are a second goalie? Second so like it's, they're saying it's more difficult of, to... No, a second golden age. Oh, second age golden age. <laughs> you know, there's just so many right. opportunities and so much being created that it's really uh, almost an ideal time to step in. Yeah, I mean, right now, I mean, the shows maybe aren't that, you know, back in the olden days, there was what, three channels, like everybody knew every show that was on television. Now, there's so many networks, there's so much content, and people have an endless appetite, we're realizing, for content. So yeah, I'd say, you know, just numbers wise, and in terms of the openness, because there's so much demand for content. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about as good a time as you can, can imagine. I mean, you know, think about how much how many services there are how many how many channels there are how you know how much content each one is making i mean remember when it was a new thing for netflix to do an original show or amazon and now it's sort of old hat um you know the the everything's expanding and you know it's just great there's great opportunities uh everywhere so you know this is i, I you know i'm not sure the golden age was necessarily called that because of the opportunity that was there but you know this is certainly a different type of golden age yeah, for sure. And do you think that we're going to see a change in landscape kind of with everything going on with the virus and the lockdowns? Do you think we're going to see more people coming to Canada with everything shut down still in Hollywood? Or do you think things are going to return back to what they were eventually? Um, you know, I think pink things will go largely back to, to normal, quote unquote normal. But um I think what everybody's learning is that remote contact is good. And that's not been a secret for people like like myself who work with Hollywood a lot. I've when I worked on Too Late to Say Goodbye after after one visit to LA, I don't think I talked to or like 
well, I talked to them. I didn't meet our producers in person again until we were shooting, I think, in Hamilton. Um, you don't need to be in the same city in the same room as people. You, you know, even writers' rooms. Right now, Andrew was telling me the kids in the hall reboot that he's doing. They're uh, they're all doing it like we are right now, remotely with Zoom. Um, so I think you know, to the extent that Zoom and you know Blue Jeans and all the other the other similar platforms were being used. Uh, Quite a bit before i think people are going to rely on them a lot more now and they're not going to feel like they have to travel as much and and you know maybe there won't even be that much pressure to go to la for meetings for a young writer maybe they can just have virtual meetings yeah i think that sounds like it's going to be ideal for a lot of people especially it might open up opportunities for people living remotely who can't for whatever reason come to toronto but would you recommend that they people do come to Toronto to have those meetings and to be in the industry? Or do you think you can still have a career living outside of the major cities? Well, I mean, I'd say my my case is a good example. I, I've spent, you know, I'd go to LA for a week at a time, you know, in my 20s, maybe I'd go a few times a year, um, just take as many meetings as I could, just try to be a presence there, set things up. And that was enough, you know, to get stuff going that I could live in Toronto the rest of the time. Um, you know, it, it could be the same thing for someone who lives in, you know, a smaller town in, in Canada that wants to come into Toronto, have some meetings, go to some events and then, you know, head back. Um, you know, you seem to be able to do most of it remotely, but do people do want to have that face to face meeting once in a while? Um, I was dealing with uh, one of the executives for the Guadalajara Film Festival uh, before COVID and, you know, as good as our relationship was, it definitely got strengthened when he came to TIFF and we spent some time together. Um, so, you know, I think those, the, the in-person meetings will always still be part of it, but to the extent you can, you know, do a little bit of that and then do a lot of remote, it's going to make, I think, living almost anywhere a lot, a lot easier and, you know, being the, in the industry and working. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time today, but I just wanted to ask you what's next for your career what can you speak about anything you're working on at the moment uh what what do you want to achieve in the next five ten years well i mean yeah i write i'm working on you know a bunch of things i write something new every year i um you know the last high profile-ish thing that i had was the was the development with fox where this was fab and myself and brandon furla another of ours who's actually teaching in the online writing program now uh and andrew sold our show to um uh to fox tv and 20th century fox they actually were going to put us on after book brooklyn 99 they said um so this was you know well beyond the option stage we were developing we were fully sold to them uh, which is unfortunate because now that disney bought fox and the whole thing's dead we can't actually get back our rights to the show but uh, it was a good experience um you know since then a friend of mine wrote a book called Before Life about, you know, just the, the same way we think the afterlife isn't real, the afterlife doesn't believe in us. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's doing really well. They've actually ordered the trilogy of books now from him. Um, so you can find that on Amazon, Before Life by Randall Graham. Uh, so I've, he and I are doing an adaptation of the film and uh, we've actually had some interest for TV, even though we want to do it as a film. Um, I was able to get a writer's access point grant last year to write uh, a show that's based on a short film by our own Tony Del Rio called The Man Table about urban dads and sort of 
uh, their background place in the family where kids and, and pets come first. Um, and you know, that's, that's been a lot of fun and, and, you know, working with Tony and, you know, we'll see about that one. I'm not sure if the time is right. Um, and then currently I'm working on, uh, I think I mentioned this to you, uh, the life story of a friend of mine, Adisa Glasgow. He's the chef right now. He's the chef at 3030. He used to be the chef owner at Lalo, which unfortunately had to shut down during COVID. Uh, but his life story coming from Trinidad when he was 11 and living in Vancouver and sort of experiencing the culture shock and, and you know, frankly, the racism uh, in Canada that he was completely not ready for, um, you know, was quite the story and his struggle to sort of get through that and become a chef um, is interesting. So, yeah, we're working on that now. Uh, always I have to be writing. I mean, this is uh, if this is something you love doing and creating and writing as part of uh who you are which it is for me i'm always gonna writing something whenever i i look back and i say what have you done in the last six months and i and i haven't done anything new or haven't worked on anything i say that's not okay that's you know you know as busy as you are you know you have lots of ideas you want to you want to flesh out and i force myself even if it's the middle of the night to do something start something new that's awesome i think that's great advice to always be writing if writing is a something that you want to do you got to you've got to write. There's no other way into a career in writing than to write. Um, so there you thank go. you so much for your time today, Adam. And thank you all for tuning in. Uh, Arts Anatomy is brought to you by Toronto Film School. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I've been your host, Darcy Love, and this has been Arts Anatomy. Arts <laughs> Anatomy.